The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations Breakthroughs and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about the struggle that the courts have with all of the cutbacks and the lack of resources and how they're really trying to promote, to some extent, the preference for alternative dispute resolution, which includes mediation and other consensual forms of alternative dispute resolution, which we call ADR. And it's been such a challenge for me, for example, just being a mediator on this panel, a private mediator, to, to help clients to resolve their issues very early so that they don't spend a fortune in court. And then I came upon this study and this wonderful research that is done by a professor at UC Davis School of Law, Donna Shatowski, and she has just got a fabulous background, which we're going to tell you about, and then we're going to talk about this study in just a couple minutes here. So let me tell you about Professor Donna Shatowski, and she is not only a JD, which is a lawyer and a professor, but she's a PhD in psychology as well which uh, I, I find that really interesting because I have a master's in psychology, so it's kind of fun to blend the law and psychology. So that is another way that I resonated with her. She also taught at Stanford University in legal psychology, and she established a research lab devoted to the empirical study of juries and dispute resolution. And then during 2003 and 2004, that academic year, she was jointly assigned to the faculty at Northwestern University School of Law in Chicago and Kellogg School of Management. So that's an, pretty impressive as well. Dr. Shostowski teaches criminal law, negotiation strategy, strategy, alternative dispute resolution, and a seminar in legal psychology at UC Davis. She also coaches the King Hall Negotiations team, which happened to rank first in the world in the International Law Student Negotiations Competition back in 2009, and she was the 2007 recipient of the Distinguished Teaching Award, and her legal and psychological commentary has appeared in national periodicals and in the media such as CNN, NPR, and the New York Times. And she advises courts in the development of court-connected alternative dispute resolution programs. And she provides negotiation education services 
to law firms and a number of national organizations such as the Practicing Law Institute. Her primary research is to examine the structure of the legal system and explore ways in which the legal system might be improved, which all of us want that, especially when the courts have been losing so much money and and have to really uh, budget on a shoestring. And she's done a tremendous amount of research, which I read about, I told you about that, and she's currently conducting a national longitudinal study funded by the National Science Foundation and the American Bar Association, which examines how litigants decide on how to choose and resolve their disputes. So I'm so thrilled that we have this wonderful professor with us. Donna, thank you so much for joining us from Northern California. You're really terrific. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Donna, you know, how is it that you got into alternative dispute resolution and mediation? You know, you came from having a, you know, a law degree and a PhD in psychology. So how did that kind of lead you to ADR? Well, I'd been studying psychology for quite some time before I ended up going to law school. And when I got to law school at Stanford, I took some really fascinating courses relating to ADR, including a course on mediation and negotiation. And it started to become apparent to me that law is all about psychology. Um, you know, the primary goal of the legal system is to shape people's behavior. And before we can do this well, we need to understand how people think feel and behave, and that really is the business of psychology. So to me, I I just can't disentangle law from psychology. And there were lots of different uh, intersections between law and psych that fascinated me personally. A lot of research out there on jury psychology, eyewitness psychology, but out of all the areas that piqued my interest, the one that seemed to need the most uh, research still, from a policy perspective anyway, was litigant psychology. So I decided to vote to devote time to this area, um, specifically looking at how plaintiffs and defendants make decisions about legal procedures, and I had the opportunity to start that research when I was in graduate school some time ago. So it's kind of been many, many years now that I've been interested in this. Yeah, that's, it's such a fascinating, you know, study. You know, I, I also came from having my master's in psychology, not a PhD, and then I went back to law school. So I had been a teacher first. So that, that's kind of how I led into it. But, you know, being in the middle of mediation, you know, you're sitting there, you, you basically have to understand the psychology of what is going on with these people as well. So that, that it is a great um, background, I think. It, it really gives me some value added to the mediation that I can kind of understand what's going on and help them understand what, you know, what some of the issues are behind the, you know, the fake issues, <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fascinating. Now, I know for over a decade now, you've been studying how litigants view legal procedures and how they compare trials to ADR procedures such as mediation and arbitration. So what do you think are some of the main advantages um, of the various ADR procedures over trial from the litigant's point of view? Well, you know, you raised an excellent point earlier when you started talking about the economic downturn and how it has greatly impacted uh, the courts. Um, As a result of all of that, litigants often face a very long waiting time for trial. Um, It depends on the court, of course. But a year and a half to two years of waiting time is definitely really common these days. Uh, the longest waiting time I've heard of is uh, five years. 
for a civil case. I mean, that's an incredibly long time to wait if your company money or peace of mind, for that matter, uh, hangs in the balance. Um, so imagine, you know, you have a small business and it's going to live or die based on the outcome of a case that you're involved in. And you've put your life's work into building that small business. Well, five years, even two years of time, expense, psychological ambiguity, well, that can be, quite frankly, you know, too much to bear. So I think that in such instances, resolving a case through a procedure like mediation, arbitration, or negotiation, all of which can take place much sooner in time, well, that might be a really good option for many litigants because you don't have to wait many years for a mediation, arbitration, or negotiation. And in terms of my own research, I've also come to find that other more psychological factors like attitudes and values, they also make ADR procedures seem attractive to litigants. Um, For example, uh, the more that litigants value a future relationship with the other party, the more they like the idea of a negotiation that would include the attorneys as well as the parties at the settlement table. So there's all sorts of psychological factors at play as well. And, you know, I'm just thinking of the people that I've mediated and they've been in litigation for a while at the court and then they come to me because they're referred out to to try and resolve it early and they are just worn down, stressed out. It, you know, it's not just the cost of their attorney fees, which are, you know, exorbitant, but it's also the cost in terms of time lost at work. And then, of course, they're stressed out. They come home and it hurts their family because they've got a deposition that they're worried about and they have to take off work and then they don't get to see their family or they're preparing for it. So you know, when you're talking about psychology, the, the, the stress that these people go under when they're in litigation is just really overwhelming for many people. They end up having heart attacks and then it affects their health as well. So, yeah, when we think of, you know, money, it's, it's, there's a lot of costs as a well lot of costs. as money. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of lawyers, you know, focus too much on the economic costs. But, um, you know, the longer uh, a process is, the more other costs come into, into play. And uh, absolutely, time, stress. Um, you know, the negative impact it has on relationships, marriages, and the like. Um, you know, the early part of my research hasn't been able to investigate these issues just yet, but um, I think that some of this is going to come out in another data set that I'm putting together right now, and I, I absolutely uh, hypothesize that um, your predictions are going to be spot on. Yeah, and the other thing that I do for the Orange County Bar is I do uh, attorney fee disputes. I mediate those for the, you know, as a volunteer for the bar. Mm-hmm. And I notice <laughs> that the longer that the cases go on and the higher the fees, the more there is a dispute between the attorney and the clients. Mm. And so what ends up happening is these people, you know, they're in the middle of litigation, things are going on, and they just feel out of control. And then they get these huge bills. And then, of course, when the case ends, either usually to their dissatisfaction, even if they win, sometimes they say that they were overcharged. Right. Um, then they come to the Orange County Bar and they can go through this process. They can either mediate or arbitrate. And so I do the mediations for the bar and I see what's going on is that the when these things go on and on and on and the billing goes up and up and up, there is a strange relationship between the attorneys and the clients. So you know, one of the other thoughts about attorneys being more open to this more, you know, quick 
resolution is that when people resolve it and they resolve it to their satisfaction, they're more happy to pay their attorney. I would not be surprised to find that out at all. Um, And I I think what you're saying makes sense in the sense that, you know, one dispute that might seem to be lasting two, three years, if it goes through the court system, then suddenly, you know, might be dragging on for another two or three years because of fee disputes or an appeal. So, you know, all of these things can take up almost a decade of someone's time. Exactly, exactly. I I was actually an expert. I do I do privacy expert uh, witness testimony as well, and I was an expert on a case that lasted eighteen years. It oh was a goodness. patent thing, and there was some privacy issues in it. And the poor gentleman who finally did really prevail in millions of dollars, he got leukemia, and he was so sick. By the time he got his money, he was really just way beyond health. You oh, know, that is sad. yeah, it is so sad, and it just breaks your heart to see that kind of a thing. Yep, they're not getting a lot of healing from whatever process they're using, that's for sure. No, it's not a healing process to litigate, obviously, because somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. That's right. And, And so even if you spend all that money, you have a high chance of winning or losing, you know, which is really unfortunate. Now, yours was the first study of how litigants evaluate legal procedures at the start of their cases. And that was, that was ever done in a large number of litigants, uh, you know, across so many courts. Why don't you tell us about this study? I think it's fascinating. And how did you go about collecting the data on so many people? Um, well, the study, uh, you know, which was funded by the National Science Foundation, the American Bar Association, and also the University of California, Davis, basically it, it, it has two parts, and this has been going on for a number of years now already. Um, The first part looks at how civil litigants assess procedures at the start of their cases, which is an incredibly understudied area. And the second one looks at how they evaluate procedures after their cases are over to see whether their attitudes about legal procedures change over time for the very same case. And, you know, this is a large undertaking, as as you said. So we've been collecting extensive data from over 400 litigants spread out over 19 different states, um, and we've recruited these litigants with the help of three courts that we've been working with. It's not always easy to find courts who are open to collaborating with researchers, but we were just uh, so lucky. Um, the Third Judicial District Court, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, is involved, Superior Court of Solano County up here in Northern California, and then the Fourth Judicial District in Multnomah County, Oregon. So we basically got lists of litigants from uh, these courts over various periods of time, and we uh, randomly selected from the eligible plaintiffs and defendants from these courts um, a subset of people to um, send a survey to. Um, and we uh, indicated in, our, in the letter that we sent along with our survey to the litigants that they would be, um, if they agreed to participate, they'd be completing two different surveys, the one they got in the mail, and then a phone survey after their case was, was over. So we asked tons and tons of questions. We spent about a half an hour to 40 minutes with every litigant asking them about um, their experience with uh, the courts and with the different procedures that they used. So um, basically the types of cases that are included um, are contracts, employment, civil rights, medical malpractice, property disputes, personal injury, pretty much um, all sorts of different kinds of uh, civil disputes out there are included in our sample. And the initial written survey, which was uh, the part of the study that's over and is reported in my latest paper, we basically asked litigants to evaluate procedures 
in light of how attractive uh, they would be for their particular case. So the procedures included um, the jury trial, the judge trial, mediation, non-binding arbitration, which is the kind of arbitration that courts offer, uh, binding arbitration, which is really common in consumer disputes, for example, and then uh, different types of negotiation. So basically this was an assessment of how they were looking at procedures um, at the beginning of their cases and how they were sorting them out in their minds. Right. Was there follow-up also as to after they got through, how their thoughts changed or no, or will that be? Yes, you know, the second part of the study, which is uh, hopefully going to be wrapping up this summer, asked them tons of questions about what procedures they ended up using, how many procedures, and what order they used them. That's something that no one has looked at yet. We're going to ask them, you know, the effects uh, of um, the dispute resolution process on the relationship with the other party, you know, what the outcome was, what their satisfaction levels were with the outcome and the process with the courts. Um, we, you know, with 30, 40 minutes of time, we ask a lot, a lot of questions, trying to figure out, you know, how they regard these different procedures after they've experienced them. And also, um, given the attitudes they expressed about the procedures at the start of their cases, how those attitudes may or may not have changed uh, during the life course of their dispute. I think it's fascinating. You know, the people that come to me, like I also do divorce mediation and the people that come to me that have been in litigation, whether it's, you know, for business or whether it's employment or whether it's divorce, it's fascinating to me that if they've been doing that and they wanted to totally come out of the court and go into mediation and, and actually sub their attorneys out and they want to be pro per, okay. they are the best. Wow. <laughs> they are the best mediation clients ever. And the reason why, I think, is they have been through the ringer. They have been through attorneys that they ended up, you know, getting very angry at because they thought it was taking too long. They what, you know, they were spending money and nothing was happening. And then they'd have to wait. And then there was tons of time off from work. And they just had no privacy and no confidentiality. I mean, it's amazing to me. They are delicious. I mean, when somebody says to me, I want to get out of the system, you know, can we get into mediation? I just really am excited because they know it. They get it. It's, you know, if you've been through a bad experience, you are much more happy. You really appreciate the privacy. You appreciate the fact that you're not spending so much money because you're meeting together. It isn't like your attorney has to call his attorney. His attorney has to call him. Then he has to call back his attorney. His attorney has to call your attorney and your attorney has to call you. You know what I mean? It's right. just you're all sitting in the same room and the the confusion and the expense is so much diminished. So for me, and again, I don't have the kind of study that you have, but over you know 29 years, that's been my experience is that once they've been through it and they see what it is, they never want to do that again. They never want to do it again. And so they're happy and it's it but people who haven't been through it are more likely to say i want my day in court i want to mm -hmm. win i want to get you but then when they're worn out and they've spent a fortune then they're willing to sit down and negotiate or mediate or do something to take it out of the system that is quite sick actually from my perspective 
when when it's just overwhelming for people. Yes, no, I, I, I totally see your point. And I think that um, when this study is completely over, um, we'll be able to, to see exactly how they feel about these different procedures. And it, it could very well be that I, as excited as we did find uh, that litigants were about mediation at the start of their cases, because basically we found like a three-way tie, if you will, for first place um, procedure. One was mediation. Uh, another was uh, the judge trial. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, you know, some people really want their day in court. And then the third, pl- uh, the third uh, um, you know, kind of um, part of that uh, three-way tie was uh, negotiation that included the attorneys as well as the parties. And uh, there was no difference between those three in terms of which one they liked best. So they were, they were equally highly rated by the litigants at the start of their cases. Um, and it could be, be that, you know, when we ask them again to evaluate their their experiences with the procedures and what they wish they would have done and, and so on, that, um, you know, those preferences change. Um, but they are recognizing, you know, some value in mediation from the very beginning of their case, and I think, um, you know, that that's a pretty uh, special implication of the, of the study so far. I think that's terrific. I also thought it was interesting in your study that um, they, you know, they preferred to have negotiation when the litigant is present as yes. opposed to having the attorney negotiate on your behalf. I think that's part of empowerment. Mediation is empowering. Um, sitting in on the negotiation when your attorney is negotiating and being able to kick them under the table or write a note is is so much more empowering than just wondering what happened in there when yeah. you weren't there. And so I think people don't want to give up their power. And that's what's so beautiful about mediation is you're not giving your power away to a third party who's going to be the trier of fact to make a decision for you. You know, you, you're there. You're right there. The same thing in negotiation. You're there. You don't give up your power to someone else to decide you say yes or you say no or you say how about this instead, you know. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I think I hear a lot of lawyers uh, saying that, you know, they, they basically want to do the negotiation on behalf of their clients. Uh, a lot of them are convinced that the clients don't want to be there. They're like, no, no, you know, they're paying me to, to do it for them. You know, there's no need for them to be there. But, you know, my research suggests that they really do want to be present at that table. Um, one of the things that I'll be looking at in the second part of my study is how much they actually choose to speak during those procedures. Um, We don't know yet whether uh, their desire to be present there is because they actually want to say something directly uh, to the other party or the other party's attorney or whether they just want to be there um, and and feel like they were present at the table. Um, So I'll I'll be looking forward to seeing what our data show on that front. Yeah, that's interesting because um, sometimes when you're in a negotiation, the attorney will say, don't say anything. If you want to talk to me, write me a note or let's go out in the hall. That's my experience. But in mediation, you know, in the in the big group, sometimes, you know, you'll start out and you have everybody together. And I usually like the litigant to speak on his own behalf. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the attorney doesn't want them to do it. And I go, well, look, let, let them ha- be heard. And uh, they're afraid of that, you know. And I think it's the attorney that doesn't want them to say anything often. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of attorneys might be worried that they might, the litigants might blow the strategy that the lawyer has in mind. Um, but I, I think that neglects the fact that some litigants really do want to have uh, a personal voice in the resolution process. Um, I, I think that, and I, and I teach my students 
this in our client counseling class. Um, you know, I think it's really important to get to know your client on an individual basis and see how much they want to participate directly in the process in terms of do they want to just be there, do they want to say something. I mean, with, you know, the proper sort of education uh, on the part of uh, the client from the attorney, I, I think that the client can be empowered and, and not blow the strategy. Right, right. And especially in mediation, if you go into caucus where, for those of you who are listening who doesn't don't know what a caucus is, you can go have, you know, you meet together and you can meet privately with your attorney and the mediator. And in there, I, I make it, it's very important, I pretty much say, I have to hear from the litigant himself. I have to ask these questions. I need to know. And it's not going to, you know, ruin the strategy because I'm not going to be able to tell the other side because I have to keep it confidential. So at least in the caucus, I can really ask the questions. And sometimes the, you know, the, the client really doesn't want to do what the attorney wants them to do. And sometimes we have to flush that out. And uh, that makes a big difference. So I'm really fascinated about your study. And I, I think it would be really interesting to, to ask the attorneys how they feel because they have a lot of influence over their clients. Clients don't want to you know, do something that um, their attorney will get mad at them. That's right. And so, you know, sometimes they're just doing, okay, whatever you say, but then they get mad later. So, you know, that's, that's a problem. I think if you, when you're teaching your class about, you know, client counseling is for them to understand that they better really understand what the client wants and they need to not just be so controlling as, you know, unless it's something that that's, you know, against the rules or something like that, they really need to hear that. Because I see that all the time that the attorney, um, I had one case where the attorney was really trying, I could tell he wanted to milk it. There was a lot of money. This this defendant had a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, basically the, the uh, attorney did not want to settle. And I felt it was because it, there was no reason not to settle. They were totally in the wrong. And, mm-hmm. and they did not want them to settle. They just wanted to wear the other side down. Uh-huh. And meanwhile, it was wearing down the clients who were working, you know, the, the business owners. So, you know, I see sometimes that the attorney and the client are really at odds. And so that's another thing is that they really have to, we're the servants of our clients. We're not, they're not our servants. I think that's right. I, the disputes belong to the litigants themselves and, you know, their voice is the one that matters the most. Um, you know, you raise a really interesting point. Um, uh, we were uh, asking in, in uh, the first survey that went out to the litigants um, what factors they plan to rely on in deciding what kind of procedures to actually use in their case moving forward. And it was an open-ended question, so the litigants could write down whatever whatever came to mind. And um, we went through this very rigorous, you know, um, evaluation process and coding process for their responses. And um, you know what the number one uh, factor that they listed was that right. was way ranked way above everything else. <laughs> it was exactly what you said. It was you know whatever my attorney thinks I should do. That's going to be a, you know, the biggest factor that I consider um, in determining what procedures to use. And um, you know, of course, litigants are paying lawyers for their advice, and and that is uh, you know something that we have to um, you know respect. I mean, that's that's part of the value that a lawyer can bring to the table. But what I do think can be problematic in terms of 
you know, litigants losing out um, is when a, a lawyer starts telling clients what they think the client should do before they actually listen to the client um, and really get to know uh, them and their needs and what the relationship is like with the other party, you know, what they hope it will be like moving forward, you know, um, all yep. sorts of things that are more psychological perhaps. Um, until they know that, um, then I don't think it's it's the right thing to do to just start telling the client what to do um, because then I, I think that the, that will silence the, the client from sharing a lot of that information with their attorney. Yeah, and you know what? You're absolutely right, Donna. And that what ends up happening then is if they listen to their, their attorney and their attorney lost or the strategy was a backfire, then they're going to say, I listened to you and you didn't know what you're doing and I'm not paying you. So, you know, I think it's all about we, we do a service, we love our clients, but we also are trying to make a living and we have to think about, you know, are they going to pay us if they're that unhappy? So if they're part of the, the process of deciding, you know, what format to use, what, you know, what kind of dispute resolution procedure to use, and they really understand the choices and they jointly make that decision, then they can't come back and say, well, you know, I just took your advice. I just did whatever you said. So I think that's a, a big deal. Would you believe that we have just time really for, I think I think we are just about out of time. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. But let's, let's give the um, the website for the, this wonderful study. I think it's fascinating. And they can go. Do you want to give it or do you want me to give it? Oh, um, sure. So you can find my latest article at um, http colon backslash backslash ssrn.com and then you can search for my name or you can find the paper I think on on your website right Mari? Yes yes they can they can link right from our website at conflicthealing.com and we can learn more about you at um, let's give the website for the school which is law.ucdavis.edu and then you can then search for Don, Professor Donna Shestowski, Shestowski and that is spelled S-H-E-S-T-O-W-S-K-Y She's a wonderful professor and doing fabulous work. And I'm very excited to uh, hear about all the upcoming research as well. You're doing a great job. Oh, thank you so very much. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 on KUCI on Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. And visit our website at conflicthealing.com and where you can see our upcoming guests and download podcasts and listen to archived interviews and see all about these guests. Thank you so much. Bye. It's about trust. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.